the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, Tara and the Ark of the Covenant. They believed that Tara was the resuscitated Jerusalem in a new Israel. So they traced the genealogy of the kings and queens of England through the kings and queens of Tara back to the biblical King David. The extraordinary story of the British Israelites, their strange excavations and the campaign to save the Hill of Tara. Also, from Ulysses S. Grant to Donald J. Trump, the presidents who ran afoul of the law. I don't really think with this pardon there was any suggestion on the part of Ford that he wasn't guilty. I mean, the idea that a president can just do anything and get away with it is not accurate. Sandra Scanlon joins me for a short history of presidential criminality. Plus, the burning of the General Slocum, New York City's deadliest maritime disaster. Some of them, unfortunately, were caught up in the giant paddle wheels, mm. but others, because of the currents in that stretch of the river, were pulled under, as one newspaper said, the water offered no respite. How a young Irish immigrant, Mary McCann, became a national hero for her brave response to the burning passenger ship. The Hill of Tara is one of the most important archaeological and cultural sites in Ireland. In its long history, it served as a place of burial, as the meeting point for great assemblies, and as the legendary inauguration spot for the ancient High Kings of Ireland. Yet in 1899, a group which styled itself as the British Israelites arrived at the Hill of Tara and began to dig up the site. Their goal? Well, as you'd expect, to discover the legendary Ark of the Covenant, the chest which uh, supposedly held the original engraved tablets of the Ten Commandments brought down from Mount Sinai by Moses. It may sound like a cheap knockoff of an Indiana Jones movie, but the British Israelites were deadly serious and uh, very certain in their beliefs. Their strange activities, however, did not go unnoticed, and the excavations at Tara provoked a fierce reaction in Ireland. I'm joined by Dr. Mairead Carew, archaeologist and author, whose book Tara and the Ark of the Covenant contextualises the extraordinary story of the British Israelites, their excavations and the campaign to save Tara. Mairead, you're very welcome to the History Show. Thank you. Tell us about this strange I don't know, were they a group, a cult? What would you describe them as? The British Israelites. What was their history before they arrived at Tara? Well, one of the earliest writers about uh, British Israelite uh, theories was uh, John Wilson in Brighton. And he published a book uh, called Lectures on Our Israelitish Origin in 1840. Now, one of the theories he proposed was that the Anglo-Saxon race was descended from the lost tribes of Israel and that they were God's chosen people and that they were destined to reach the promised land if they kept their covenant with God. So, uh, and one of the other theories he had was that the white race was inherently superior and therefore they had a divine right to rule and also that the English language was pure Hebrew. And I presume this sense of superiority carried over into a sense of superiority over the Irish. It certainly did. Now, initially they set up an organisation in 1889. Um, It was set up by Edward Wheeler Bird, who was an Anglo-Indian judge. And many of the other smaller organisations became affiliated to that main organisation. But they 
withdrew their membership from MPs and the aristocracy and clergy and learned societies and members of royalty even. And then you had the British Israel Association of Ireland was set up in Dublin in 1897, just two years before they went to see could they recover the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, But the Tara Exploration Fund had already been set up in 1877. Um, 1877? Yeah, even before the main organisation. And they were advertising in the Banner of Israel, which is one of the journals of the main organisation for donations to Mm. dig at Tara. I'm going to go with cult on on this one, definitely. So uh, how did they become obsessed with Tara? Well, they, they, first of all, they believed that Tara was the resuscitated Jerusalem in a new Israel, which was synonymous with the British Empire. So they then carried out studies on the Bible, on early Irish history, on antiquarianism and on linguistics. And if you think of it, Ireland in 1899 was basically a royal site in the British Empire. So they traced the genealogy of the kings and queens of England through the kings and queens of Tara back to the biblical King David. And the main source for this was that there's an 11th century poem which was translated from the Irish language and it was written by Cúan O'Lochan and it describes Tia Teffy as a princess of the line of David and that she was the daughter of a pharaoh and she brought the Ark of the Covenant with her and she's buried on the hill of Tara. Right, OK. Is she, I mean, did this person actually exist? Do we know or is this totally made up? Well, it's, she's in the tradition, right. you know, so she's written about in, in the same way poem. as Finn McCool or Cucullin are in she, the tradition. Yeah, yeah. And you see, with the, I suppose, the kings and queens of Tara, you have historical kings and queens, You've, you have legendary kings, you, you have mythological kings. So they would have drawn on mythology and history and all of that. And in composing this elaborate template, shall we say, were there gaps that they needed to fill and perhaps did so with a certain amount of imagination? Well, you see, they were uh, quite diligent in drawing a whole diverse group of subjects together to get the narrative. For example, they studied the work of Charles Valancy and he was an 18th century antiquarian. Now, while he was a good cartographer and he was a surveyor, he also studied linguistics, but he wasn't really good at that. And he wrote an essay on the antiquity of the Irish language in 1772. But his work on linguistics was actually discredited in his own lifetime. So the 19th century British Israelites were drawing from the work of an 18th century scholar that was already in his own lifetime discredited. Mm. So they, you see, they had this, one of their core things was that English was predestined to become the language of the universe and that that would be achieved by expansion of empire because if it was the Hebrew language Well that's a self-fulfilling prophecy for a start <laughs> so, isn't it? Yeah so so they compared words like they said Tara was really the Torah and the Leofal was really half Celtic and half Hebrew and really was Jacob's pillow or the symbol of empire Where, whereas in an Irish tradition 
you had the idea of the God lose uh, voice could be heard through the Leah Fall when you had the correct king in place. So, I mean, are they essentially suggesting that Ireland was the holy land? In a way, maybe, yes, it was the promised land because their theory was that Tara was the transplanted Jerusalem. Right. And as the transplanted Jerusalem, where would you find the Ark of the Covenant? Well, exactly. Only where else? In the transplanted yeah. uh, Jerusalem. But we shouldn't go around looking for Nazareth and Bethlehem in Ireland anywhere. No, no, this was very... This, this is, is the a very, promised land. This is, yeah, this is As very... As opposed to the actual holy land. Yeah, this is very specific <coughs> to do with their theories. It, it's t- theories about identity and theories about empire. And at the time, like Tara is a royal site in that empire as far as they're concerned. And this is a hundred odd years before the internet even. Um, and in 1899, they arrive at Tara and yeah. you would have, I mean, nowadays, I think you probably can't even cut the grass at Tara without getting planning permission. But back then, it was completely different. Tara was privately owned. Yeah, it was. Um, and the owner... Gustavius Villiers Briscoe, he gave permission to the British Israelites to dig. And um, just to tell you, the two people that came, one, his name was Charles Groom, and he was credited in the Banner of Israel with the honour of putting the first spade into Tara. And he claimed that he worked out the fine spot using Masonic methods because he was a Freemason. And he, he had very unusual things in the Covenant people about measurements of Tara, the pyramids of Egypt and the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> and, and Briscoe was a Freemason as well so he had a bit yeah. of skin in the game. Yeah, he, he did. And, and like there is a little medallion in, in the Freemasons Hall's museum which says Knights of Tara on it. And they were a select circle of British Israelites who believed the Ark was a Tara. And they practiced a particular Masonic ceremony in memory of the Ark. And there was, it was mentioned in the Covenant people that they could discontinue that once they recovered the Ark. Now, Walton Adams was the other man. He was a prominent British Israelite. And as I, as I was saying, because they believed that Tara was the transplanted Jerusalem, they expected the Ark to find the Ark uh, there and they wanted to present it to Queen Victoria and then later her son Edward VII. And they concentrated their attention on uh, on the wrath of the synods. That's not W-R-A-T-H, that comes later, but the R-A-T-H, the wrath, mm-hmm. the wrath of the synods. And they didn't, even though um, Adams, Walton Adams was an archaeologist, I don't think they went at it with... Uh, you know, with with spoons and toothbrushes and that kind no, of thing. No, they were accused of going at it with picks uh, and shovels. If they'd had JCBs they, in those days, <laughs> yeah. they might have used one of those um, as well. But you, but you see, the the interesting thing about this sort of dig is that you had some people, like for example Robert Cochran from the Office of Public Works, he came up and put a stop to their activities initially, but because what he did was actually illegal, he had to pay compensation. The OPW paid compensation to Briscoe, but. Robert Cochran is interesting because he kind of, he, he was the superintendent of the ancient and national monuments at the OPW. He was a vice president of the Royal Society of Antiquaries and a member of the Royal Irish Academy. But he was also a Freemason and he also subscribed to the Covenant people. And he was also getting business cards inviting him to British Israelite meetings. So 
But he put, I suppose, his antiquarianism or his archaeology first at the time because archaeology at the time was getting much more scientific. So he was very concerned about this kind of attack on the site. Did they do much damage? They actually did a, a lot of damage. And is that still apparent to it this is, day? It is, yeah. You, yeah, it's, you, you can still see the damage on the wrath of the Senate. Yeah, you definitely can. Now, today, obviously, we recognise Tara as a site of, of national importance. And, I mean, back in the 1820s, it was the site of one of the biggest monster meetings during the Catholic Emancipation yeah. Campaign. Mm-hmm. So there must have been some sense of yeah. the importance of Tara. How would it have been regarded by the Irish people in the, in the 1890s? Oh, well, I mean, first of all, ordinary people, if you like, would have been sort of revered national monuments or ancient monuments or they had a lot of superstitions about them and in general they didn't interfere with them. But Tara itself would have always been regarded traditionally as the capital of ancient Ireland. So in terms of nationalism and that uh, it was very important. And a kind of a, a spiritual site as well yeah. really. Even though they, the British Israelites said it was the spiritual birthplace of the Anglo-Saxon nation. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there would have been quite a few Irish around who would have disputed that. Well, like Yeats One, and all Well, those. precisely, because this is where this is where not so much Yeats gets involved. Well, he does get involved. I mean, he, he, was, he was critical, described it as the most consecrated place in Ireland. And he, yeah. he objected, didn't yeah. he? Or he oh, certainly didn't like what was going on. Yeah, he said what they did was monstrous in its lunacy and it was being carried out by England. English fanatics. But I mean, he went up to Tara to protest with Arthur Griffith and George Moore and Douglas Hyde. And Arthur Griffith writes about that particular incident later in The United Irishman. And he said that Briscoe was standing there drinking whiskey and directing operations. <laughs> and uh, that he wouldn't give them permission to walk across the site, but uh, Griffith stated that, uh, you know, it was the site of the city of our kings. So they insisted on walking across it. But Briscoe was accompanied by a man with a rifle. So obviously they needed protection at that Mm. stage. And a little bit later, uh, Charles Groom had to be protected by the local police as well. Uh, obviously, Griffith, this was 19 or 1899-1900, so Griffith wasn't in a position to say, do you not know who I am? Uh, nobody would have had a clue who he was <laughs> in, in those days. But yeah. he, he comes back at some point and he brings somebody very interesting with him because Maud Gone paid a visit. Oh, yeah. Arthur Griffith and Maud Gone went up to the Hill of Tara on Christmas Day 1900 to see what kind of damage was being um, done. And later on, uh, Maud Gone writes the first letter in the media campaign uh, or the first article rather in January 1901 and she describes a visionary experience she had up there. She said she saw shuddery misting forms and she heard the harp on the wind and all of that but Arthur Griffith didn't see anything Mm. and well, Maud couldn't step out the door without <laughs> no, having a vision of visions. some kind. So, yeah. And W.B. Yeats said about her that if the true nature of her visions were known, she'd be locked up as mad. <laughs> and the, the, I mean, to what extent did the, the, the British Israelites come back and to what extent was this a kind of a recurring phenomenon and might have you know, required a, a campaign on the part of people like Yeats and Hyde and George Moore and people like that? Yeah, like they, they came um, for a number of seasons between 1899 and 1902 and there was like 
obviously the major campaign was going on and Arthur Griffith was sort of spearheading it, even though he he <laughs> was passing scurrilous remarks about all of them in that he was referring to the British Israelites as barbarians and Huns and the Anglo-Israel destroyers of Tara. But he didn't like the Royal Irish Academy or the Society of Antiquaries either because he called the Royal Irish Academy people old dotards who are whose veins are full of dirty water. Well, he didn't think they were doing or the antiquary, the Royal Society of Antiquaries <laughs> see, were we, doing very much about no, it. No, he, he thought they were selling Tara for dinner and champagne. But um, and the reason he, 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 he thought that was because, you see, legally they weren't entitled to stop it. So the next best thing they could uh, do was to meet the people that were involved and see could they persuade them to stop. So they were apparently meeting them in gentlemen's clubs around Dublin. So he, he was very suspicious of them all. Um, OK, spoiler alert. Um, you may wish to turn down your radio at this stage because I'm going to ask a key question. Did they find the Ark of the Covenant? No, they didn't. <laughs> no, they didn't. So they did find something. They, find, they found some Roman coins. Yeah, they didn't found they? Roman coins. Or did they find them or did they plant them? Well, at the time, they, they, it was disputed in, say, the United Irishmen whether they found the Roman coins or not, because Arthur Griffith wouldn't like the idea of them finding Roman coins on the Hill of Tara. But, you know, much later on in the 50s, they had an excavation of the Wrath of the Synods and there was plenty of Roman material uh, ah, but they could have been planted by the British Israelites <laughs> back in 1899. Um, it seems finally that some people still maintain that there is a link between Tara and the Ark of the Covenant. Tell us about that. Well, even very recently in 2018, somebody left um, a replica of the Ark of the Covenant on the Wrath of the Synods. And there was a sign beside it with Jerusalem written in English and in Hebrew and also the words Torah and Tara. So obviously people still believe in that idea. OK, it's, yeah, cult definitely is the word. Um, Mairead Carew, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the History Show this evening to talk about the story of Tara and the Ark of the, the Covenant, which is also the title of your book on the same subject. Fascinating. OK, thanks very much, Miles. After the break, I'll be joined by Sandra Scanlon to talk about the first US president who was ever placed under arrest 150 years ago. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. Earlier this month, former President Donald Trump entered the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse, where he pleaded not guilty to 34 counts of falsifying business records. He was booked and fingerprinted, although he was not handcuffed, nor was a mugshot taken. This was an historic event, a US president being indicted, arraigned and arrested. However, he's not the first president to be placed under arrest. Another commander-in-chief holds that dubious distinction. We're going to look now at the history of presidents who ran afoul of the law. To talk about this, I'm joined by Dr. Sandra Scanlon, lecturer in American history at University College Dublin. You're very welcome back to the History Show, Sandra. Nice to be here. The man in question was Ulysses Grant in 1872, the first president to be arrested. What did he do? So Grant was somebody who was well known for enjoying uh, 
horsing. He had been a commander, obviously, of the United States uh, Union Army and widely regarded as a great horseman. And he decided to take that into his presidency. So he was carriage riding in a suburban area of the city of Washington and essentially speeding. So he was speeding in his horse-drawn carriage with friends and was warned on one occasion for doing so because this had caused injury, not specifically what he had done, but another uh, horse-drawn carriage doing something similar had caused injury to a woman and a child. So he was stopped by a police officer, William West. He was warned not to do this. He decided to ignore that. And the next evening he was out riding again and was stopped by the same police officer. And on this occasion, uh, although reports vary as to what exactly happened, he was uh, arrested and brought to the police station. The police officer in question, William West, Mm -hmm. very interesting individual. Tell me a little bit about him. He was. He was one of, at the time, one of only two African-American officers serving in the Metropolitan Police Force. He was a former enslaved person and like tens of thousands, approximately 179,000 Um, African-Americans served in the Union Army and he had done so. So he had been enslaved uh, when when Union forces moved into the South. Um, As I said, like tens of thousands of people, they moved into Union lines and offered to join the Union forces. So he had served there and then had moved to Washington and joined the, the police force. This was kind of an interesting time, this period right after the end of the Civil War in 1865, for about 10 years where African-Americans enjoyed really quite broad political freedoms, uh, the period known as Reconstruction, which, you know, it was kind of a remarkable period um, in which African-Americans were serving in Congress, were serving um, throughout state legislatures in the South. And, and this is one of those individuals who took that opportunity that freedom offered. This is before Jim Crow uh, took root in America in the the 1870s uh, and and thereafter. But it must have been doubly difficult there for for West to stop Ulysses Grant, the hero of the Civil War, the the, the war that had Mm -hmm. emancipated uh, uh, black uh, enslaved people on the one hand, and also thinking about, okay, I'm about to arrest the President of the United States of America. But he did it. He did it and it wasn't, uh, it didn't become known for a very long time. So he brought, um, the, the story The story only really emerged in 1908 when uh, when West gave an interview to a Washington newspaper. Um, although there's, you know, rumours of the story had been around for, for before that. But the, the story is that he told the president he was sorry, he would have to arrest him. And Grant allegedly replied, well, do your duty. I, I Something along the lines of, he I admire know, people do who do. not know who I am? No, no, okay, apparently, apparently the word was, do your duty, I admire admire people who do your duty. And the story is that Grant actually drove West to the police station in the carriage. Slowly. Uh, slowly. <laughs> um, in the carriage. And the carriage was taken um, into custody, as was briefly was Grant. And he was fined $20, which I think amounts to you know, a fairly substantial amount of money um, by today's about $450 and was, was told he could walk home. And everything was then hushed up or it just didn't emerge? Well, the story, as I said, from the only real kind of account we have is from 1908. And this is West's account. And his how he described it was that essentially he was booked. He was allowed to return to the White House. He was arrested with friends also. Um, they were fined. The friends did, the associates did return the next day to police court and were, you know, contested their arrest, but were, were essentially told, no, you're guilty. Grant didn't return. So Grant stayed in the White House. So there's less of a hush up, I think, than simply that Grant did essentially accept the fine. The fine remained with the police. 
And that was that was very much the end of the matter. Okay, so this happens in 1872. Mm-hmm. It puts a very interesting spin on something that is said about 100 years later. Richard Nixon mm-hmm. being interviewed by David Frost, the famous Frost-Nixon interviews, says, when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. Mm-hmm. Was that actually the case? Is that actually the case? So this is something that is obviously contested, but the broad consensus is that no, that is absolutely not the case. Um, This was something that Nixon said, as you mentioned, um, after he had left office, after he had resigned, uh, very much on the back of being about to be impeached, about to be found guilty of of, of crimes, and was, of course, then was was pardoned by his successor, uh, Gerald Ford. And Gerald Ford really pardoned him, largely to avoid the kind of political scandal that would come from this, but also the idea that to put a president through a trial, a trial that was going to be lengthy, that was going to be convoluted, a trial that was almost certainly going to result in him being found guilty, was going to be very damaging to the nation. So the idea was that I don't really think with this pardon there was any suggestion on the part of Ford that he wasn't guilty. So when Nixon said this, this was something that was really coming years after um, he had left office. Well, a few years after he had left office, he's trying to, I think, resurrect his status, his stature in society. Um, but no, no. I mean, the idea that a president can just do anything and get away with it is is not um, is not accurate. There is, of course, executive privilege, which is the idea that the president has to have freedom of manoeuvre while in office. And therefore, um, there's executive privilege that prevents him from having to release certain information to Congress and so forth. But it's not the same thing as not being guilty of something like speeding. I know it's a what if question, which mm-hmm. we tend to try and avoid. But if he had not been pardoned by Gerald Ford, would Nixon have faced criminal proceedings or is the punishment mm-hmm. of impeachment, is that effectively the sentence on a a, a president mm-hmm. who commits crimes? Yeah, it's a really complicated one to answer because at the time Congress was in democratic hands. So as I said, there's no question um, that Nixon would have been impeached. He would have been found guilty. Barry Goldwater, a longtime supporter of Nixon, was the one who went to him in 1974 and said, look, you have to go. I will vote to impeach you. So at that point, there was a sense in which impeachment itself would have been enough of a punishment. But the reality is that we, we did have evidence at the time that there were prosecutors looking to actually take this further. And Democratic leadership was saying, no, this is such a serious crime that he has you know, interfered so much. Um, in terms of these dirty tricks campaigns, in terms of covering up what happened, that he would actually have to face prosecution, as did so many of his aides. Like, let's not forget that his chief of staff went to prison. Many of his other aides went to prison. So there was a sense, I think, at the time that, well, if they went to prison, he would have to do so similarly. Brings us on then to mm-hmm. to Bill Clinton, um, who was impeached mm-hmm. for, for perjury. Again, he was acquitted by the, yes, by the yep. Senate. But could he also have faced uh, criminal charges for perjury, in theory anyway? I think theoretically, yes. Um, the reality is that this you know, perjury is a very serious crime. It was not regarded as serious enough um, by the Senate to warrant him being removed from office. So this is where we come into that complex issue of, is a president guilty or not guilty? Well, he may be guilty of something in the case of Grant, for instance. There was no question that he was, wasn't guilty, but there's also no question that he would be impeached or removed from office. So what we tend to find is that there's broad support for the kind of, of conviction that was not going to lead to any major political upheaval. In the case of, of Clinton, uh, he could have faced 
prosecution um, after the fact. There was no prosecution taken largely because of the fact that the evidence wasn't upheld um, or perceived as being sufficient by the Senate to actually warrant impeachment. Clinton did take Mm -hmm. a fall, though, in the sense that I think he faced consequences in relation to his ability not, I'm sure that he would have exercised that his ability, but his ability to practice law subsequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so because of them, I mean, there were so many investigations, as we know, that were going on in relation to Clinton right from the early 90s, the Whitewater, um, the whole issue of perjury had come come about because of his um, testimony in the Jennifer Flowers case. So there's a series of different cases that are taking place and ultimately he does lose his licence uh, to practice law and you know does face the possibility of criminal charges in, in Arkansas. Um, they're not pursued largely on the basis that there's no direct evidence, although there's direct evidence that associates of his have been involved in criminal activity fraud, um, namely he's not, there's not sufficient evidence in those cases, but he is perceived as having been involved sufficiently that he does lose the, his licence to practice law in Arkansas. So unfortunately he wasn't able to practice law, so he had to resort mm-hmm. to making public speeches. Absolutely, for I'm not sure he was running pop. back to Arkansas yeah, or anywhere else really, really. <laughs> in any case. Uh, which brings us, I suppose, up to, up to date mm-hmm. almost, and the arraignment of Donald Trump. Um, Alvin Bragg, uh, Manhattan DA, strong case, weak case, good idea, bad idea. At the moment, it looks like a fairly strong case. I don't think this would have have come to to the the position that it's in because it's obviously extremely politically volatile. Um, As many of your listeners will know, there have been, you know, this has been denounced um, almost uniformly by by Republicans. So this is this is this is not a sh- an open and shut case. It's a reality. Um, so in that sense, it's a strong case. There's been a, you know, five years of investigations into the business practices. It's gone through. Obviously, it's gone through grand juries and so forth. The reality, though, is that whether or not it's going to actually, you know, what the defence is going to be in this is unknown at this point. Um, and that's what we're going to have to wait and see whether or not he's going to be able to withstand actual conviction on these matters. But I don't think think this case would have come to the fore given the level of political opposition if there wasn't sufficient evidence. Whether or not it's a good political move on the part of Democrats, um, I, I would have to question. Personally, I would question this. It's seen as a witch hunt amongst many ordinary Americans wonder what is the point of this. This is simply Democrats trying to get back. At, at, at Trump. And part of that is because it is a very complicated case. It, it does involve a lot of business fraud. Uh, so it's not a straight, you know, it's not a case of just speeding. It's not something straightforward and obvious. Even even perjury, it's not that straightforward. But of course, it's not the only case that he faces. It's Absolutely. not the only illegal danger mm-hmm. that he faces. Is Alvin Bragg, to some extent, a kind of a John the Baptist, preparing mm-hmm. the way for the Georgia DA to bring charges, making it just a little bit easier mm-hmm. for the Georgia DA to bring far more serious charges and for the, the, the two uh, Jack Smith investigations. Yeah, so there's been a lot of you know political back and forth about whether or not it was a good idea to bring this case, if this is not just going to have the, you know, the effect that in some ways the Clinton impeachment did of just making people tired of hearing about these prosecutions, because this is going to go on and on for quite some time. The Georgia case is much more serious. This is about a direct intervention, um, as your listeners may know, in trying to overturn um, an election, trying to, you know, get a Secretary of State not to, to put forward the, the election results um, as they stood at that time. So that's that's much more serious. And it's also more serious because of the fact that there were so many people in the White House, even on the day in question, saying, don't do this. This is a bad idea. This is not legal. You cannot do this. So in that sense, that case is much more serious and much more likely uh, to result in, I'm not sure if it'll re- result in a 
guilty verdict, but it's certainly much more damaging to the Trump brand and to any possibility of his return to politics. And part of this, of course, is as well about trying to prevent him from running again. You know, Democrats are very concerned about that. And I mean, obviously, there are Republicans who are decrying uh, the witch hunt of mm-hmm. Donald Trump, who would be only delighted if any of these cases prevented him. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he is, I mean, in some ways, he's not really the figure. Um, He's just, you know, he's somebody that represents so much to so many people, um, his image, his brand. And that's something that Republicans can't let go of. They don't want to let go of the brand, but they'd be quite happy to let go of the individual. Now, obviously, in the past, Donald Trump has uh, been quite successful in avoiding legal consequences because he tended to be really was only mm-hmm. involved in civil cases and he was able to postpone, postpone, procrastinate, etc., etc., and push it out uh, into infinity. This is different. He doesn't, he's not setting the timetable anymore. So mm-hmm. I suppose there is the possibility, remote however it is, that he might end, uh, end up going to prison. What would that look like in the sense that Every former president is entitled Mm -hmm. to lifelong Secret Service protection. So would his bodyguards have to go to jail with him? This this is really unknown, to be honest. And and even it would depend, of course, on on what what specific, like what the sentence was. I mean, people have talked about the possibility of some kind of house arrest, you know, minimum security or, or prison. Or Rudolf Hess, he could have his just, own Spandau prison. Absolutely. It's, it's hard. It's, it's not something that I think a lot of people are necessarily even sort of thinking through the consequences of it. I mean, the reality is he wasn't, you know, he wasn't put in handcuffs, as you say. This is not an orange jumpsuit situation. So they are treading lightly, I think, with this. There's a very, you know, a need to, to ensure that this is seen as an proper legal investigation as opposed to a witch hunt, which many people, quite frankly, think it is. My guest is Dr. Sandra Scanlon of University College Dublin. Sandra, many thanks for joining us to talk about the history of presidents and criminality. And after the break, we'll be staying with American history as we look at the sinking of the PS General Slocum, the worst maritime disaster in New York City's history. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. On the 15th of June 1904, New York City suffered one of the worst disasters in its history when a passenger ship named the General Slocum caught fire while sailing along the East River. The resulting blaze claimed the lives of over a thousand people. It was a truly horrific day, but it was one during which a young Irish immigrant became a national hero in the USA. That immigrant was Mary McCann, who grew up near the Westmeath village of Glasson. Because of her extraordinary bravery that day, she was later honoured by the United States Congress. To learn more about the General Slocum disaster and Mary McCann's role, I'm joined by Ian Canelli, historian and researcher for The History Show, who's written about those events. First of all, who was Mary McCann? What was she doing in the United States? Okay, so Mary McCann uh, was born near, in a townland called Britis near Glasson in, in Westmead. And uh, she emigrated to the United States when she was around 17. Is not quite sure. She might have been 16. And her exact age isn't, isn't quite clear, but she was a teenager. Uh, when she got to Ellis Island, where so many immigrants arrived, she was found to have scarlet fever. So she was transferred to a place called uh, North Brother Island, the Riverside Hospital there. Now, at the time, North Brother Island was used as um, a kind of uh, a holding pen for people with infectious diseases. Typhoid Mary, Mary Mallon had spent time on, on North Brother Island. So that's where Mary McCann ended up uh, with scarlet fever. And then she, over a few weeks, she recovered. And by June 1904, she's healthy enough to be working as a kind of an orderly in the hospital, working on the wards and so on. 
And while she's working in the Riverside Hospital, on the morning then of the 15th of June 1904, people are boarding the General Slocum. Tell us about this, this ship. What, what was it? Okay, so it was a passenger ship um, and before it became infamous it plied its trade sailing. It had been built in 1891, sailing up and down the East River, taking people on pleasure cruises. Now it was uh, a steam steam paddle ship, so it had three decks, it was about 80 metres long and it was powered by uh, two giant paddle wheels on left and right side of the ship. They were about nine metres tall, they had 26 uh, paddles and uh, that's how the ship moved and on that day it was uh, carrying about 1,300 or 1,400 people, uh, members of a Lutheran uh, community in what was called Little Germany on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And uh, that was well within the capacity of the ship. The ship could carry 2,000 plus mm. people. So it wasn't overcrowded or anything. But these 1,300, 1,400 people, mostly women and children, were planning to go to Long Island uh, to mark the end of the school year, uh, spend a day picnicking be picked up in the afternoon and come home. That was the plan anyway. Uh, didn't work out though because the General Slocum began its journey from the Lower East Side shortly after 10am uh, that morning and at first the journey was completely uneventful but signs of trouble appeared as the ship reached a place called Hell's Gate. What happened? Well, Hell's Gate, roughly where the Robert F. Kennedy Bridge is now, is is long was long known as a, an area of dangerous tidal currents, uh, shipwrecks and so on. Um, and just, it was a, an, an unfortunate place to encounter trouble. Passengers noticed smoke. Captain disregarded those early uh, warnings that there was smoke coming up from below decks. Uh, but it turned out that just underneath, at the, the forward part of the ship, uh, one of the main cabins had been storing oil and all sorts of flammable material. And that had caught fire probably through a cigarette or a carelessly discarded uh, match, something like that. But the, it was a wooden hull ship, so the, the flames started to spread very, very quickly. And how did the ship's crew and how did the captain react once he realised, as I said, he he ignored the, the initial warnings, but once he realised that there was a serious problem on board uh, and that displays were starting to spread, now what you have is the front of the ship is on fire, the passengers are starting to move to the back of the ship just to get away from the flames. He uh, seems to have frozen. Then, now, there was a public inquiry afterwards as to his actions uh, and he would, he would end up being uh, incarcerated, but he seems to have frozen on that day and decided to just plough ahead towards North Brother Island. Why he chose that spot is not clear but it was about a mile or so away and for the next few minutes the ship was heading straight towards uh, North Brother Island burning all the time And did people try and jump overboard? Well yeah they did but there was a, you know this is a, a large ship and people are you know they're 8, 9, 10 metres above the water also the, the, the stretch of water they're in is very uh, dangerous it's women and children so a lot of the a lot of the passengers, maybe they can't swim, but it's a lot of very small children, you know, infants, uh, babies, uh, children, uh, toddlers under five, six years of old, not able to handle the, the, the currents in that area because a lot of contemporary reports made reference to that point that even those people who did manage to get into the water, women and children jumped out from the side of the ship, for example. Some of them, unfortunately, were caught up in the giant paddle wheels, mm. but others, because of the, the, the currents in that stretch of the river, were pulled under, as one newspaper said, the water offered no respite. And this is where Mary McCann enters the story. How does she respond to what she sees happening? Right, so you've got this 
the ship is, is careening towards North Brother Island. So from the, the first indications that there's a fire to the moment it hits North Brother Island, it, it's six minutes. Now, hundreds of people have probably died at that stage. Um, the people in North Brother Island, including Mary McCann, they can see what's happening. They can hear the screams of people coming. That alerts the staff at the Riverside Hospital. They're down on the beach waiting for the ship to hit North, North Brother Island. It literally careens into the island. Uh, the back of the ship swings around. So what you have is the ship is kind of half half submerged, half sitting on the beach. The back of the ship is still over 20 metres away. There's an incredible fire. Uh, the heat is, is intolerable. Uh, and Mary McCann and others now, but Mary McCann decides to go into the water and start looking to help people. So the first person she pulls out of the water is a baby. She brings that back to shore uh, and one of the other hospital workers uh, takes the baby from her, wraps it and, and looks after it. She goes back into the water and pulls out uh, a child. Now, just to give you an idea of the chaos that's um, that's engulfed this area and that's surrounding her, there's bodies everywhere. There's accounts of people, you know, desperately trying to help, but everybody they pull is, is already dead. But she manages to help. Uh, she manages to save one child and she brings that child back to shore. That child is, is please, please go back and get my brother. And she thinks he, say, he says his name is Harold. She's not sure, but she goes back and saves a kid and she brings that kid back to the beach. She's not sure if it is the boy's brother. In, in total, she goes out five times and she comes back to the shore uh, three times. On other occasions, she comes partially back in and, and hands the hands one for uh, the people she's rescued over to someone else. According to some newspaper reports, she swam out to the rudder of the General Slocum and, and saved a woman that was hanging hanging onto the rudder, brought her back to shore. Uh, and there's numerous reports like that. Then there's her own testimony to the, the public inquiry that took place afterwards. And she almost comes to grief because she almost attempts one rescue too many. Yeah, like, you know, this is exhausting. Repeatedly going out, dragging people out of the water, bringing them back to safety. As she makes what turns out to be her last uh, rescue attempt, she's bringing somebody back to the shoreline and a young girl grabs her legs and she's frantic, she can't swim and she's dragging Mary McCann beneath the, the water. Now, just fortunately... There was a whole ecosystem of different types of workers, firemen and police and so on on North Brother Island. One of the firemen heard Mary McCann screaming and managed to rescue her and the girl and get them both back to shore. What was the reaction in the US to this horrendous disaster? I mean, more than a thousand people die. Yeah, it is extraordinary. And there, there is, as there is after these type of events, there are public inquiries of various sorts, coroner's inquests and so on. Now, you can probably guess that the safety standards at the time were pretty lax. But the General Slocum and its captain, a guy called William Van Shake, were found to have not even met those lax standards. And he would end up spending, he'd be sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. He'd end up spending four. Uh, his wife would uh, successfully lead a campaign for his release and he was released uh, after four years later. But otherwise, as if we look at, say, just before we get to Mary McCann, obviously the community of Little Germany and the, that was devastated by this disaster, a thousand people. And even though it's a thousand people are officially dead, the true figure is probably 12, 1300 more. And there's people who are grievously injured and people who've lost their families and their suicides and so on in that community for a long period afterwards. But Mary McCann, in contrast to William Van Sheik, the captain, who's seen to have failed in his duties, even though he stayed on the ship to the very end, she's held up as an exemplar of heroism and, and clear thinking. And it's extraordinary, you know, this idea of 15 minutes of fame. She really lives up to that because she is um, 
her face or, and her testimony and her interviews are with her are, are all over the press, New York Times, regional newspapers all across the United States, to the extent that she ends up getting thousands, uh, according to some newspapers, it's thousands, in her own words, it's hundreds, uh, of marriage proposals. Uh, now she says herself... Um, she didn't seem at least bit awed by uh, the, the media coverage, but she did say to the uh, she gave numerous interviews with regard to the marriage proposals, and she you know she said, "Look, and I paraphrase, but this is weird, you know, <laughs> please stop." Uh, and she even said that she she told the postman to stop bringing her uh, these proposals because they're mostly from old guys, and she, I, and this is the quarter directly. She said, "I'm here to work, and if I uh, if I do find marriage eventually, it'll be uh, through my own devices and not through uh, letters from 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 old guys." And her action on that day becomes important and becomes integral to the debate on Irish immigration to the Mm. USA, doesn't it? It does, because she's held up as an example of what immigrants can bring to a community or bring to a country. You know, later in the 20th century, 1917 and the early 1920s, there are very restrictive uh, laws regarding immigration brought in in the United States. So that debate is always, it still goes on in America, it's always there. Uh, A number of newspapers highlight Mary McCann saying that, look, this, she's, she arrived here penniless, she arrived here ill, but within a couple, she arrived in April 1904, by June 1904, she's already a hero and has saved the lives of nine, she was credited with saving the lives of nine people. I just, there was one, you know, there was newspapers repeating each other's copy but one newspaper um, item on her was repeated in multiple places and it ended the, a piece about uh, emigration and Irish people by saying you know may Ireland send us many another Mary McCann and keep keep them coming basically She was honoured by the US Congress a few years later does she fade into obscurity after that? Uh, yeah well she goes back to living a normal life I suppose you could say she as regards fame yeah she fades into a, a, uh, obscurity now she lives till 1966 uh, she marries in, in 1916 um, and she ends up they, that, that couple end up having four children four daughters but yeah that is the, the high point of her, her fame now the, the, the medal that she got from Congress came in 1909 so a few years after uh, the Slocum disaster so she has that, that period but she was for, for a brief period held up as a, a remarkable example of an immigrant and somebody of, who showed immense courage Indeed, Ian, many thanks for joining us this evening to talk about Mary McCann and the general Slocum disaster of 1904 That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website rte.ie forward slash history show My thanks tonight to Tommy O'Sullivan and Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.